Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Friday morning, the 11th of August. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Yesterday, the CSO published its Consumer Price Index. And yes, as you very well know, inflation continues to make life very challenging for many, for some, it's just unaffordable. Household costs were the main contributors to the July 2023 Consumer Price Index, which showed that the total cost of goods and services rose by 5.8% in the last 12 months. The good news is that the rate of inflation has dropped and that prices appear to be going in the right direction. But of course, it's not all good news because many people will tell you their bills are unaffordable and there is not much hope of that improving in the short term with inflation now running at 5.8%. Although this was down from the 6.1% recorded last month. The cost of mortgage repayments rose by almost 50% in the 12 months to July, while electricity, gas and other fuels were up by about 15%. Wow. Indeed. That's Anthony Dawson, uh, who is a statistician in uh, the prices division of uh, the Central Statistics Office, the CSO. Suzanne Rogers, research and policy analyst with Social Justice Ireland, joins us. A very good morning to you, Suzanne, and thanks for taking the time to be with us on the programme this morning. Life is uh, very difficult, unaffordable at times for many people, and probably not at all surprising, because we're looking at two years, or thereabouts of inflation. The CSO said yesterday that this is the 22nd straight month where the increase in inflation has been at least 5%. That's really the key, isn't it? That we've had this sort of quite sudden rush of, of price increases. Like I went into the CSO, um, you can go in and you can pull up tables for particular things. So I just went in and looked at the white slice pan because I think we all love our white slice pan. And it goes way back to sort of 2012. And you can see where it's a really consistent price all the way along. And then around that 2021, 2022, boom, it goes up. So that's the key. And I think that's okay if it was just the, the slice of bread. But every single thing that we buy 
has gone up. So if you buy 50 or 60 things in the supermarket and they've all gone up by 20 or 30 cent, I can't do the mental maths that quickly anymore. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like you, All of your bills have gone up. And I think that the real kicker with all of this is that it's the stuff that's non-negotiable. Like This isn't the nice-to-haves. This yeah. isn't... Well, you know, we'll abandon our ski holiday this year. You know what I mean? That's not the sort of conversation that this is about. This is the heat, the light, the roof over your head and food on the table. Like these are the core costs of every household. Yeah, and well, they have increased. If you look at the last year, according to the Central Statistics Office, the biggest increases have been in housing, uh, electricity, gas and fuels, generally speaking, all up by 16.5%. Recreation and culture, I suppose how we relax, uh, almost 14%. Yeah, I mean, the, rec- the recreation piece could just be that we're, you know, we're finally starting to get back out a little bit more after, I mean, we only came out of lockdown last year. Um, I think I, time has gone a bit woozy in my head now with, with, with mm. being locked up for so long. But, you know, so you can see how we're starting to slowly go back out, maybe try and have, you know, a, a meet people for a cup of tea or a pint or something like that. So that sort of makes sense. But it's the mortgage ones, I think, there again, kind of are, are quite concerning because when you go into the central bank's mortgage arrears figures, we still have this cohort of mortgage holders who are still in arrears since the crash of 2008. Mm. We've got a lot of mortgage holders who have been in arrears for 10 years or more, and we haven't found a solution for those. So that would concern me that if if prices are going up and your wages haven't gone up to match yeah. your outgoings, that's the key. Something has to give. Yeah, well, there's two real problems, uh, I think, when it comes uh, to mortgages. One is for people who haven't fixed or who've uh, come out of a, a fixed-term mortgage uh, and are, are now paying at least 4%, it would seem. Uh, and then there's those who've had their loans sold on to vulture funds who are paying up to 10% interest. Uh, overall, according to this data from the CSO yesterday, uh, as we heard there a moment ago from the statistician, uh, we're looking at mortgage repayments increasing for some people at least by almost 50% over the course of the year. Yeah, and I know when, when you go in and you apply for your mortgage and they stress test your mortgage to see, I don't think that they're looking at those kind of increases when they do that. And suppose the traditional trajectory as well is that, you know, you buy your house a couple of years in, maybe you're committed to a, a bigger car, maybe you've started a family. So I would imagine as well that these price increases with mortgages are coming at really, really difficult times for a lot of people if they're a couple of years into their, into their loan and they're still pri- paying primarily interest. Like that is going to be huge, huge, huge. And again, those are the sort of costs that are non-negotiable generally. I appreciate you can go in and you can discuss repayment plans with your mortgage holders but you're not going to get a discount they're not going to reduce the interest rate for you Mm. they're just going to figure out how are we still going to get the money out of you over maybe a longer period of time so again you're looking at people having to cut back on other things and i think that's that's the concern is what are people going without in order to be able to put the lights on put the roof over their head like are they foregoing medical care are they foregoing um you know, uh, I suppose even, you know, are, are you eating less so that you can put the heat on, that type of thing. Mm. Yeah, and I, I suppose uh, percentages are, are one thing. Uh, when it comes uh, to real money, it's another thing. But I, I guess you have to ask yourself, if your mortgage repayments have increased by 50%, uh, has your income increased by 50%? You mentioned bread earlier on. Uh, and it, it's not just uh, the price of bread that went up. Five cents in the last year. Spaghetti has increased. Potatoes have increased. Milk has increased. 
cheese, butter, uh, a can of beer is up, uh, the price of a pint is up. Almost everything we do, uh, it seems as though it's more expensive to do it. That's it. And again, these aren't the fancy things either, sure they're not. You know what I mean? You're going in and you're getting your, these are your basics. So it's very, very hard to... I suppose to 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 re you know redo your budget, redo your your, your shopping list. You know what I mean? That you're, you're trying to get rid of things that you don't really need if you need to cut back. Like these are the things that people need. But you can see it right the way across the eurozone. You can see it in the US. The types of things that sort of central banks are trying to do, and the types of things that governments are trying to do to bring down inflation rates. Obviously, what's happening in in Ukraine is is impacting as well on the price of. The raw materials, it's impacting on the price of energy. So there's, there's a lot going on, you know, in, in conjunction with other things. Like we came out of COVID, but we, the COVID conversations we were having were that we, we were expecting a long scarring in terms of long-term unemployment. More people employed now than there, than there ever had been before COVID. So it's a strange space, I think, for policymakers to be in because mm. a lot of it isn't following the traditional trajectories of inflation and the types of things that they do to tackle inflation. Okay. But I think this year, we're not going to see prices come down this year, if, if, if ever, to be honest with you. I can't see them going backwards. Well, that's uh, the worry, I suppose, that a, a lot of people have, and they're hoping that their incomes will rise in line with the increase in prices and uh, with inflation. Uh, the immediate problem for a, a lot of people, it would seem, is uh, the return to school next month. And 25% of parents uh, told Bernardo's uh, recently that they just can't afford to send their children to school, that in order to pay for them to go back, uh, they're either going to have to borrow uh, or take out a a loan, as the case may be. I saw that particular report again, quite concerning. And this is even in light of like the really welcome move in the last budget to have free school books for primary kids. And you would hope that schools would be a little bit more, um, I suppose, fluid or a bit more accommodating in terms of <clears throat> the uniforms that kids can buy, the voluntary contributions that are expected by parents. And I appreciate that there's lots of support out there through charities and through the Department of Social Protection. <clears throat> but at the same time, not everybody's comfortable in going somewhere and saying, actually, I can't afford to send my kids back to school. I need help. That's a huge step for a lot of people. So, yeah, I mean, going back to school now again, like that would be a big, big, big concern for a lot of people now in the next couple of weeks. So it would be interesting to see what comes out of budget 2024 because mm. the Taoiseach has announced that this will be a, a child poverty budget. And I suppose you're very conscious as well that there are a lot of households who, who earn enough to be able to manage themselves but have found the last year or so very, very difficult who don't apply or don't qualify for any social welfare benefits of any type that that you know that there would be room i suppose to support those um those households as well so it'll be interesting to see what they do in terms of the school supports in budget 2024 if it's tight now for people uh, is it going to get a, an awful lot worse when we go into the winter and uh, the colder weather I had a conversation there recently with Vincent de Paul and Mabs about utility arrears. And what you'd normally see is you'd build up your arrears over the winter. The logical thing, you'd build up your arrears maybe over the winter. And then you'd have that little bit of leeway in the summer to be able to pay a little bit extra off your arrears because your bills would have gone down during the summer. And what they found over the last winter is that the level of arrears that people are bringing into the summer with them 
are so much higher than they've ever been. They're, they're proving really, really difficult to shift those arrears. Mm. And our bills haven't really come down did that much this summer. We haven't had the greatest summer. Like I even looked on the, like on the CSO and they're talking about clothing and footwear, that that's down in terms of the, the monthly changes. So I'd imagine everybody's trying to sell off their summer clothes because we've abandoned all hope of a summer yeah. now. Mm. Um, or, tra- so or trade them in for an umbrella, as the case may be. <laughs> I know, yeah. It's been it, yeah. a washout of a summer, but at least it has been relatively warm. I know there's been uh, cold days, people giving out about the weather and the cold and all mm. that, but warm in terms of not having to put on your heat. Uh, but having said that, as you say, people are in trouble. Uh, I think the latest data on that is that there's over 400,000 people in this country who are in arrears with a population of 5 million. That's just ridiculous. It's it's I, I, I can't, I, I mean, the, the language I want to use now, I can't use on, on, a, on, on a radio wave. Yeah. Like, it's mm. extraordinary. It's absolutely extraordinary. Um, and and I appreciate again that the utility companies have have been have been really proactive in this space. They've been working with the likes of the Money Advice and Budgeting Service to to be able to put plans in place, to be able to put hardship funds in place. Again, anybody who's struggling with the utility bill, please, please, please do ring your provider. Ring Maps. There are supports available. But it just goes to show, though, that people who they, they can't budget anymore because they had no idea what kind of a bill they were going to get. You know, so if you if you're on a lower fixed income, and you see it a lot if you're in the post office, you get your payment, put 10 off this, put 10 off that, put 10 off this. So people were paying away and covering their bills on their income during the week. And then all of a sudden they got these extraordinary bills that they had never, like there was people who have never been in arrears, who've always been able to manage their money. And then they just got these bills that came out of, of, of thin air and really struggled with them, especially older people as well really, really, really struggled with, with those exceptionally high bills over that period. It's it's distressing as well as like that money worries as well is not good for the physical or mental health to be added on to, you know, being afraid to put the the height the, the, the heat on or the light on. So yeah, it's going to be I think we 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 need to be very, very careful this winter, I think, about the supports and people checking in on each other as well, I think, making sure that their neighbours are, are, are okay and are kept warm. All right, Suzanne, we leave there for the moment. And uh, as you say, hopefully there'll be better news for people in October when uh, the budget is announced uh, to turn this situation around. But uh, obviously trying times for so many people. Thank you, as I say, for joining us. Suzanne Rogers is a research and policy analyst with Social Justice Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, there's a, a very interesting opinion piece in the Irish Times uh, today. The headline over it is uh, The Christian Brothers Are Still Tormenting Abuse Survivors. Uh, this is written by Justine McCarthy, who's arguing uh, that staggering hypocrisy of uh, the Christian Brothers or cheapskate bullies is causing this. Yes, Justine McCarthy is saying that the congregation ought to be renamed the Cheapskate Bullies for its persistent torment of abuse survivors via the legal system. She reminds us in her article of the Ryan Report published in 2009 and how it took a decade for that to be published because the Christian Brothers did their damnedest to stop the truth from coming out as she puts it and she refers to Mr Justice Sean Ryan the Commission's chairman who said the Brothers had made statements they knew to be incorrect or misleading, omitted relevant facts and denied that a member of the congregation was ever in an institution where a witness had got a name even slightly wrong. Over the years, when members of the congregation went on trial in the criminal courts for forcing sex
attacks on children. It sought judicial reviews and frequently secured orders that the trials be abandoned due to the lapse of time since the alleged incidents of abuse. When survivors turned to the civil courts in pursuit of compensatory justice, the brothers barefacedly denied the allegations compounding the victims' suffering. The Commission recorded a particularly despicable example of this unchristian strategy following the grotesque abuse by a brother of a child in Artane Industrial School. A witness to the commission told how he was ordered to lick faeces off the shoe of a brother who thrashed him when he had done so. The report states, uh, Justine McCarthy reports that the man identified as the perpetrator by the witness verified the account and admitted his guilt but despite this his congregation continued to insist the incident never happened. I'd like to uh, read uh, the last uh, paragraph of uh, Justine McCarthy's article too uh, because it's very topical. She says there's many good people among the brothers who um, are mainly the lay teaching staff in the schools uh, and they're not to blame for the congregation's tactics which might be characterised as harder for a rich man to squeeze through the eye of a needle than for a legalistic brother to squeeze through a loophole in the law. What exactly are they trying to protect with their cynical courtroom ploy, she asks. Is it money? That stuff Jesus Christ, the man who inspires the congregation's name, flung from the temple along with the lenders. For the past fortnight, Ireland has mourned Sinead O'Connor as a fearless advocate for child abuse survivors. Stories about her many private acts of kindness and support have tumbled forth since her death. As her family laid the singer to rest this week, a void opened up that needs to be filled by new activists who will stand up for those who continue to be tormented. Where is the public anger at what is being done in full view to victims and there's 30 victims in the situation where they can't sue the brothers. Uh, And she says that as schools prepare to reopen this month, Ireland is busy getting books and uniforms, but what it needs most in the interest of its children is to get mad. As I say, that's uh, from Justine McCarthy's uh, opinion piece in the Irish Times uh, today. Now, Philip Tracy is a solicitor with Coleman Legal in Dublin. That's a a firm that represents victims of childhood sexual abuse at the hands of Christian brothers. Philip is on the line. Uh, A very good morning to you. And thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Given your experience of uh, this legal strategy that Christian brothers have adopted, which is thwarting, which is obstructing victims from getting compensation, from getting redress, from getting justice. Do you agree with Justine McCarthy that people should be mad about this? Good morning, Michael, and thank you for the opportunity and thank you for your continued coverage of this particular matter of huge public significance and importance. Uh, I I would agree with what Christine, uh, so what Justine is saying there for sure. This is a, a matter arising from a Supreme Court decision of 2017 where it was decided by the court on that occasion that an unincorporated body cannot be sued in the absence of members of that uh, unincorporated body electing a person, a member, to act on behalf of the entire uh, unincorporated body. The Christian brothers in this particular matter that our office is dealing with and it is a matter of choice, Michael. That, that's important here. Whilst it's not illegal for the, the brothers to do this, it is a matter of choice. There is nothing in law preventing them from nominating uh, one of their members to act on behalf of the entire congregation. And there is nothing in law that obliges them 
to not nominate a person. In this regard, Michael, our firm at Coleman Legal, we represent a number of victims. And, and in our experience with other religious congregations, they don't choose to do this, so they nominate somebody. So what's happening here with the Christian Brothers is they're relying on a lacuna in the law and a gap that very much needs to be closed urgently. And I know the Law Reform Commission are looking at this, but it's a technical defence that in essence, Michael, it's playing the man, not the ball, okay? So it leads then to a situation where one particular case I'm dealing with, we have over 100 defendants, over 100, and, and some number of them who are actually dead, which you also then have to consider pursuing the legal personal representatives of the estate of those deceased co-defendants. Just back up a little bit. When you talk about 100 uh, defendants, uh, explain that uh, to our our listeners. Uh, You don't mean mean that there's 100 Christian brothers who have abused children. There's about 100 Christian brothers uh, left in the world today. It's a very small congregation at this stage. No, it doesn't. No, essentially the the 100 plus defendants were all members of the Christian brothers Mm. at the time of the abuse uh, to this particular uh, client of ours. The, the person who perpetrated this abuse upon our client, uh, a Christian brother himself, is currently sitting in jail, having admitted his, his crimes towards our client. Mm. He, he, so so there's, one, one, there's only one offender. Uh, there's only one offender, yes. Yeah, but, but uh, there's uh, 100 people being sued, is it? Yes, because the, the head of the order has decided to deploy this legal tactic wherein they don't nominate anyone, which means, following on from that Supreme Court decision in 2017, you have to pursue every member of that order mm. who were members of the order at the time that the abuse was actually happening. Right, that so sounds very complicated uh, and really? almost impossible to achieve. If I came to you uh, and asked you to represent me as a solicitor, I told you I was abused by a Christian brother 40 years ago uh, and I had to sue a hundred uh, brothers or thereabouts, 99 of them who had nothing to do with it. Uh, how would you set about that? But what we, we, we do in these cases, we like to, any religious order that, that a client of ours comes in and makes a, a claim against, we write to the head of that order and ask them to nominate somebody. And the Christian brothers in this regard are an outlier because all the other orders nominate. The Christian brothers choose not to nominate, which leads to a procedural morass where you have to pursue. You have, first, you have to find out who all of these members are, and that's not an easy task. And we indeed had to go to court to seek an order to get the list of names of all of these people. When we finally got them, you then have to set about uh, serving each one of these now co-defendants to the High Court proceedings with the summons. But, but, then but, but, to, but did the Christian brothers not give you the names? They, yes. Well, one particular case we're dealing with at the moment, Michael, yeah. we have to seek an order from the court. We asked, but they wouldn't give us. So we have to seek an order, and only upon order of the High Court were we given those names? Right. So you're put, you're put through the ringer, essentially, Michael. Okay. And the other thing I'd just like to emphasise, Michael, in not, not that, you know, choosing to nominate as, as other orders do, that's not the same as accepting liability. So the, uh, any order is still entitled, perfectly entitled, to fully defend the case if they do not believe they are liable for the wrongs that were, were, were committed yeah. uh, upon victims of sexual abuse as, as children, okay? So th- it is a choice, and the end result is to put victims of childhood sexual abuse through the absolute ringer, a procedural morass, 
where it takes years upon years, huge amount of cost, time mm. and risk then to victims, as I said, of childhood sexual abuse who carried the damage, the injury all of their lives. This affects them, their day-to-day lives, their relationships, their careers, everything. It, it, they carry it. And when they finally reach a stage in life, Michael, it takes time to get there where they have the capacity to initiate legal proceedings, they are then met with this technical defence, which, as I said, it only serves to uh, put every barrier in the way of you know, people who are pursuing, as they are constitutionally entitled, justice for the serious wrongs perpetrated upon them. OK, how difficult is it to complete a case like this on behalf of a client from your perspective uh, first of all you've got to get the names and addresses uh, the Christian brothers wouldn't give them to voluntarily you had to get a court order to do that and I presume that the 100 brothers that you're suing don't all live up in a house in Drumcondra or something like that uh, because this is going back 40 years so they're scattered all over the world uh, and some of them would be very elderly some of them may be in nursing homes uh, and so on so uh, how do you go about that? Yes, well it's very difficult it's very complex it takes a huge amount of time in our office in Coleman Legal we have a full team working on, the, on one particular case it, it takes that amount of manpower and resource behind it and obviously the brothers and the head of the order indeed will be aware of this. And I do believe they should be called upon to answer the question, why are you doing this? Because I can tell you what the end result is, is to put huge difficulties and challenges in front of victims of child sexual abuse by doing this. So to answer your question, it is enormously complex, hugely time-consuming, massively manpower-demanding, and enormous cost and in this one particular case that we're dealing with at the moment, the perpetrator has admitted his guilt in the criminal court. Hmm. So it is, it's a matter of choice. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Very it's, an, it's, it's an open and shut case. It's a, a question of what level of redress uh, is justified. Uh, you ask why the brothers have uh, adopted a, a strategy like this, uh, and uh, yeah. maybe we heard a, an answer to that on the programme quite recently, uh, because this is a, a strategy that was uh, introduced by Brother Edmund Garvey as uh, the head of uh, the order uh, at one time. Uh, and uh, uh, as I'm sure you're, you're aware, Philip, uh, Brother Edmund Garvey is a freeman of Drogheda. Uh, the victims have been asking councillors here locally to rescind the freedom of uh, Drogheda on Brother Garvey because of the pain, hurt, anguish and uh, double abuse that it's causing on victims uh, of sexual abuse when uh, they were children. Uh, um, That's probably not going to happen. Uh, And we spoke to a local councillor recently about why um, they would support um, that wouldn't support the call to rescind the freedom of information and uh, P.O. Smith was the councillor in question and he said well look you know um, there's a lot of elderly brothers now and perhaps this is too expensive to pay compensation out to these victims and they need that money to look after uh, people who've had a, a lifetime vocation serve the brothers and now are in, in their twilight years uh, Have the Christian brothers got the wherewithal? Can they afford to pay the compensation that is due from them? My my understanding, a recent article, actually, in huge detail, Colin Keane of the Irish Times went into it. It seems that there's a lot of assets. There's there's, there's property here, there and everywhere. There's there's substantial cash assets in, in the bank. 
Um, but, but what I would say in relation to compensating the, the victims of clerical abuse as children, lifelong damage has been caused here. And for the brothers indeed to be putting themselves ahead of victims of childhood sexual abuse to me is morally unconscionable. I, I would also say, Michael, that um, just in a say there, hello? Hello, yes, go ahead. Sorry, Michael, I thought I lost you there for a no, second. Sorry. Yeah, I would say, you know, choosing to put these, um, you know, their own needs ahead of victims of sexual abuse, to, to my mind, is absolutely wrong. Uh, and clearly, from the, the information that we have gathered and what I can see from Colin Keane, I have written the Irish Times, there seems to be a lot of assets there. So I, I don't see any reason why they can say that they're not in the position to do so. Mm. In relation to those elderly brothers that you refer to, some of who are in nursing homes, they're scattered all over the world. I don't believe it's fair on those, I'd have to say. You know, a lot of Christian brothers did a lot of good in their time. And these men are now getting you know, legal letters that are told they're being added to proceedings in the High Court in Ireland that they're being sued as having been a member of a congregation going back some years ago. And they're now faced with these legal threatening letters that their, their names are being read out in courtrooms that in one particular case we're dealing with, we have some 91 orders already for judgments of default of appearance. So we already have orders against these, these elderly men. And if I was one of them, in my own opinion, I, I would be wanting to ask the head of the order, why am I being put through this? Right. It is peculiar. Uh, I think everybody finds it peculiar that uh, the Christian brothers uh, would act in what Justine McCarthy said was such a, a, an unchristian way. Uh, yeah. And uh, that article that you mentioned from Colm Keena, I think it was published on Tuesday, did outline the assets, uh, the plenty of money. Uh, and I think that's why she renamed them the Cheapskate Bullies. Uh, but it, it does appear, as we've said on this programme before, that this strategy has been adopted by the Christian Brothers with uh, one objective, and that's to protect the bank balance of the Christian Brothers. And that is being done with total and utter disregard for children who were raped and abused by men. Uh, and those children uh, were in the care of the Christian brothers uh, in schools uh, around uh, the country. They had a duty of care to those children. Uh, redress or compensation would recognise that they failed in that duty of care, but it would also recognise the abuse that it had on the victim uh, and the impact that it has had on that victim's life. Uh, it really is hard to take in that the Christian brothers are acting in such a way. It's wholly unconscionable, Michael. It is wholly unconscionable that they would choose. And that's what I said at the start when we were talking. This is a matter of choice, and they are the outliers. They are the only order that we are aware of that are doing this. And as you say, the, the children who are, who are now grown adults and have carried this injury with them their entire lives are now being met with this. Every single obstacle possible being put in their way in their pursuit of justice. To me, it, it's absolutely wrong that in 2023, and in particular in cases where the perpetrator, the single perpetrator, has done this and has admitted their guilt in a court of law and is in prison for okay. this, and they still choose to stand over this defence tactic, which, as I said earlier, Michael, it's playing the man 
not the ball. Damien O'Farrell obviously has brought this uh, to the attention of uh, this programme and has been lobbying uh, councillors to write to the Christian Brothers asking them uh, to drop this strategy. The councillors have agreed to that uh, and now the councillors in Drogheda are to look at the issue of rescinding the the freedom of uh, Drogheda and brother Edmund Garvey. Uh, But uh, the legal challenge that you face uh, as a, a solicitor um, in terms of trying to represent people who were raped and abused as little boys uh, is monumental. Uh, would I be right in thinking that that challenge is so great that there are victims uh, who either couldn't put themselves through such uh, a long, protracted legal battle or wouldn't uh, have uh, the wherewithal, wouldn't be able to uh, afford to take on such a legal case? Absolutely, Michael. No, no, no doubt it is putting people off. And in my personal opinion, that's the intention. That's, that's the whole idea. And people are, are learning about this and they're, you know, perhaps they're victims themselves. And they're saying, well, am I going to go through years of that? Being faced with every legal barrier being put in my way? And some people just for, you know, they've carried the psychological injuries, they said, for the entirety of their lives. They're not strong enough. They're not able to do that. But I, I can assure you, certainly in our office at Coma League, we are actively pressing, pressing this issue in the court and standing by victims mm. uh, full, uh, stand front and centre in their full pursuit of justice as they're perfectly entitled to seek. OK. Uh, it's cold, it's calculated, it's legal. Uh, it is legal. It, it is I legal. But can I ask you a question, last question about the legality of it? Because you say the Law Reform Commissioner are hoping to change the law. Uh, the former Chief Justice Frank Clark has uh, condemned uh, the uh, strategy that's been uh, adopted by the Christian Brothers. Uh, but it, it's also been questioned in the courts by a number of high court judges, hasn't it? Um, is that very unusual uh, to me a lay person that would seem very unusual that a, a judge would be questioning a strategy adopted uh, when that strategy is legal yes i mean i think some judges have certainly you know worked out what's going on here and as i said earlier on you know it is a matter of choice and if they were to nominate somebody it's not the same as accepting liability for for the the wrong perpetrated upon our clients and indeed all victims of childhood sexual abuse. So, but judges certainly are questioning it, and they are giving orders, such as we have achieved in a particular case, for, for names of people, dresses of people. We also had to go back to court then to find out for those deceased co-defendants who the legal personal representatives of the estates were. We asked before we had to, to return to the court who they were. We, would, we weren't given them. They were refused. So we again had to take up more court time uh, and cost and expense and more stress to our clients uh, but by getting an order just to give us the names of the legal personal representatives of the estate of those co-defendants. So it, it's a procedural morass. It's hurdle after hurdle. It is hugely complex. It's, it's time delaying. The Christian Brothers Order will be fully aware of this but they should come out and explain in detail if it is not to protect themselves and put themselves ahead of childhood uh, sexual abuse victims well then what is it for why are they doing it OK Philip we'll leave it there for the moment many thanks uh, for joining us nice to talk to you too That's many thanks for the-
Thank you. Philip Tracy is a solicitor with Coleman Legal based in Dublin. That's a firm that represents victims of childhood sexual abuse. Michael Reed on LMFM. Thanks to Mary who's texting us uh, this morning and she says, Michael, this might seem very inappropriate uh, when it comes uh, to sexual abuse, but at least... The young boys who were abused by Christian brothers have uh, the support of each other today as men. Sadly, children in the community who were abused by a family member or someone in their community that they trusted feel more isolated, if that makes sense. Thank God for Nolene Blackwell and the Rape Crisis Centre. And yes, Michael, you carry it all your life, as your guest explained, uh, says Mary. Thank you indeed, uh, Mary, for that. Uh, I think uh, it sounds more sad uh, because it's probably true than inappropriate uh, that when it's a a family member or someone known to you like that uh, that uh, you've nobody at all to turn to uh, and you're in the same situation if you like as uh, the men who were abused as boys by Christian brothers uh, but uh, you have no one to turn to it's a deep dark secret Uh, if anybody has a deep dark secret uh, as Mary said thank God for the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre and Nolene Blackwell call speak to someone uh, and talk your troubles through Uh, I wanted to mention a text that came to us yesterday as well because I I found it uh, quite shocking and I thought I'd ask you what you think of it because we were talking about uh, the problems uh, with uh, drugs. Uh, we had Peter McVeary on and himself and Christy Mangan uh, talking uh, about treatment and how it's so wrong uh, that you have to wait up to a year for treatment if you've got a, an addiction. Somebody said uh, drug addicts bring on their own troubles themselves. So why should the state supply them with treatment? Uh, I'll leave that to you to respond to if you wish. Uh, but thank you indeed to everybody who's been in touch with us today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, thanks uh, to Jackie who's WhatsApping uh, the programme today. And Jackie says that the coverage of uh, how the Christian Brothers have adopted uh, this legal way of thwarting victims of child sexual abuse from receiving redress uh, that the coverage on the programme uh, is a great support to the victims and uh, the silence elsewhere is deafening but she says we will keep going. Empathy and respect towards survivors of child sexual abuse should guide our actions not manipulate justice or diminish compensation. Remember no currency can ever replace the priceless healing so survivors of child sexual abuse deserve. Thank you very much, Jackie, for your WhatsApp message. If you wish to make comment on the programme today, our telephone number is 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Now, the INHFA, that's the Irish Natura and Hill Farmers Association, is demanding that something be done about sheep worrying and about dogs worrying and killing sheep for that matter. It follows the latest incident in County Kerry, which saw 11 lambs killed and 18 injured. John Joe Fitzgerald is uh, the Vice President of the INHFA and he's on the line. A very good morning to you, John Joe. Thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. We were promised something would happen in relation to this before Christmas gone, weren't we? We were, yeah. Um, You know, I've been on the dog campaign here now in West Kerry for the last three and a half, four years. And we were promised by Heather Humphreys that she would have something done for us by now. Um, She has an intergovernmental committee or group put together to deal with this 
but that's not good enough. We know that's only just pushing the the matter down the road, I suppose. Mm. And look, if I remember correctly, serious. if I remember correctly, going back to last September, uh, the Taoiseach then would have been Michal Martin. He asked Charlie McConnell as uh, the Minister for Agriculture, uh, to do something. He set up this committee with Heather Humphreys. Um, I think at the time, Michal Martin was talking about banning. Uh, dangerous breeds and that there would be much uh, more stringent measures put in place but very little has happened. Uh, There was talk of recruiting extra dog wardens uh, but I don't think that there's been less in the way of worrying sheep, has there? No, there hasn't and I'll give you two good examples of it here now in Kerry. Um, Just after Christmas in the new year uh, this time I went down to South Kerry to Sneem to meet a farmer down there um, Patsy McCarthy. Now he had at the time about 95 between sheep and lambs driven off the cliff down there into the sea. They all perished. They all died. 95? 95 driven off the cliff. And he he doesn't know what happened since or where the dogs have gone or what the story is. Now, um, there, um, the start of this week, I was talking to Tomas O'Leary there from Beaufort, um, just on the side of Killarney, Dingle side of Killarney there. And uh, Tomas um, came across um, his sheep one morning 11 lambs killed and 18 injured and of those 18 that are injured he reckons they'll never be right. Mm. Now it's um, it's an ongoing situation um, you know I've been long enough on the campaign now and nothing absolutely nothing has happened it's been pushed down the road by government at the moment like uh, you have three or four government departments dealing with the the dog issue. Now, I suppose the leadership of it falls under the, the remit of Heather, Heather Humphreys. Now, uh, we have written to Heather Humphreys on two different occasions this year um, demanding action that we would sit down at the table and have a discussions with her. Now, we have the solutions for her and all we all we are demanding is that she will sit down with us, we'll work this out together, we get it, we'll get it over the, the line, all the various groups, animal welfare and animal rights group and even Mountaineering Ireland are on board with us to push this through and get it over the line. Mm. But I'm afraid the government are lacking. Why is that the case? I mean, we were promised uh, the moon and the stars uh, after that little boy was uh, attacked in Wexford that we'd reform legislation uh, on dog control. I don't think there's been any real amendment to legislation, has there? No, absolutely nothing at all, as far as we can see. And, uh, like, I've sat in um, with the Minister uh, McConnell over there, and I've brought the issue up with him. And, um, well, basically, I've been fogged off a couple of times, and it's not good enough anymore. Do you know, it's, mm. w- we're a country that's very highly thought of in Europe and respected for animal welfare and everything else. Mm. And the only one that's lacking behind on this is the government themselves. Right. So, if you don't... Uh, try to stop dogs from worrying sheep. That's what they're going to do if they're free to do it because it's instinctive, isn't it? Yeah, it's instinctive. That's it. You know, it comes from the original dogs, I suppose, wild wolves, and you know, all this and they were running, I suppose, thousands of years ago through the countryside and stuff. You know, mm. it's in their nature to do that. Right. And people that own dogs need to realise even a small pet of a dog can, you know, worry can worry a sheep, and especially at lambing time, like. Mm. I have had a situation here, I'm um, going back about three years ago, I was in the Better Farm Programme with Tagus there, and I had 33 empty sheep out of 130 sheep. Now, at, at the same time, that was during the campaign in West Kerry here with, with the dogs. Mm. And at the time, we put it down that it was worrying by dogs on the, on the hills. 
Now, it's, it's very serious. I, I'll give you another example of it here. I, I, going back about seven or eight years ago here, um, we, I was walking on the, along the hill, um, going up to a, a glen where we call Coundbilk, and I could see two people coming over the brow of the hill, um, which a black dog, Labrador dog, and the next thing they left the dog off, coming down the side of the cliff. Mm. Now, I had about ten sheep up on the, on the verge of that. The, the sheep ran out to the verge of the cliff, and the dog ran after them, and the next thing, about eight or nine of these sheep jumped off the cliff because they were so frightened. Now, I took off, I was shouting and roaring at these people, and the next thing they took off, up the mountain, never said nothing, never apologised for it, and that's the situation we're dealing with here now, day in and day out. My God. It is. And, you know, the worrying aspect of it for us, it's like, and especially for, uh, dealing with the government, yeah. this has become the new norm in Ireland now. Yeah that we will accept having farmers' livelihood, their sheep, absolutely being slaughtered and nothing being done about it. You know, it's yeah. not right. No, you I, know, I'm, trying, I'm, tr- I'm trying to um, understand how frightened the animal must be that it would jump off a cliff. Uh, it must have well, been frightened out of it. The only thing I can think of is 9-11 when people were jumping off the buildings before um, that they felt it was a, a fate worse, better than the, the, the death that was in front of them when the buildings collapsed. It's just it incredible. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. And, you know, one of the solutions that would be for this is, um, you know, we're on about microchipping the dogs and stuff, but we need to take a DNA sample from all these dogs while they're being microchipped. And if you have a DNA sample of all these dogs, at least if you have an attack on a person or on a sheep, an animal, you can test the saliva in those bites and you could actually trace it back to a, a DNA or a data system that if it was set up. Mm. Now, that would be very a very easy solution. We're doing it at the moment, you know, we're genotyping sheep and cattle in this country hmm. and there's a database set up in the Department of Agriculture. But to what end? No. I, I mean, to, to what end? That would mean that the attacks would continue but uh, the culprits would be caught. The culprits are the dog owners, not the dogs. But the dogs would end up being destroyed. What would, ha- what would happen to the dog owners? Well, the dog owners, they should be dealt, dealt with um, through the courts and there should be severe penalties and, you know, fines imposed on these people. Because that's the only way it's going to work. And on top of that as well, you know, I'm in West Kerry here. I'm in a tourist area. If we had enough dog wardens in the county that would do, our, you know, spot checks and the, the likes of, of, of Mount Brandon here, which is in the back of my house, if they turned up there on a busy bank holiday weekend, four or five of them, and do an on-the-spot check and say, look, you're not allowed to bring your dog up on the hill here. And if you persist and if you go up off the skate, we will find you. And if, and if that would happen, you know, it would put manners in a lot of these people. But it needs to happen. It needs to happen now. And we need to see the amount of dog wardens in the country tripled. Because I'll give you a good example at the moment. We only have one full-time dog warden in the whole of Kerry. And there's two part-time dog wardens there. Mm. Now, in the town of Dingle in the summertime, that dog warden would have a full-time job just dealing with dog fouling and different issues in the town of Dingle. So, like, in this day and age, it, it's not right, like. And I suppose we have another situation as well on the hills and on the farmland here where you have tracks and trails which we allow the public to go through, um, is that we have the elderly generation of farmers now are after giving up, 
going on the mountains on the hills of Kerry in bank holidays on the weekends because the amount of abuse they receive and being threatened. And we've seen that happen above and Wicklow earlier on this year where you yeah. had Pat Dunn there and yeah. the zigzag yeah. um, trail. Do you know, this, yeah. this man was looking at that. He, he got threatened on one occasion. He told me that his house would be burned down on him. It's strange. No, it, yeah. it's, it's, yeah. it, it's not right. Like It's yeah. not right. No. Uh, I think I'll, I'll uh, spend the rest of the day thinking about your sheep jumping off uh, the cliff. I'd say you spent a, a long time uh, visualising oh, it, you're witnessing yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, dreadful. John, Joe, I have to leave there. Thank you indeed, though. Uh, hopefully uh, uh, some of our, our listeners who have dogs uh, will hear what you've said uh, about how it's instinctive in all dogs and that they should be kept under control. And thank you for joining us here on the programme today. Thanks very much, Michael. Thank you. John Joe Fitzgerald is the Vice President of the INHFA. That's the Irish Natura and Hill Farmers Association. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as you probably know, the Minister for Local Government, Dara O'Brien, has written to the chairperson of the new Electoral Commission asking that a number of issues would be looked at. The possibility of scrapping by-elections is one of those issues. Lowering, lowering the voting age from 18, another issue. Uh, limiting the use of posters is uh, another issue. Uh, and uh, this comes at a time when after the next general election we can expect a lot more TDs because of an increase in the population. Let's speak to Senator Pauline O'Reilly of uh, the Green Party who's on the line. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. Uh, Many of uh, these proposals, if you like, uh, are included in the programme for government, aren't they? Um, some are included in the programme for government and uh, it's uh, Green Party Minister Malcolm Noonan who's responsibility for passing this piece of legislation that sets up this electoral commission and um, we have asked for a number of things to be to be looked at as part of that as a government. Um, one thing around election posters I suppose which uh, I'm quite passionate about reducing the number of election posters that we have um, it, we didn't get it into the programme for government we didn't get an agreement that we would have a reduction, we didn't get an agreement that we'd have a reduction um, in voting age but there are two things that we are quite key for us as a party and um, so I had a bill last year to redu- reduce the number of election posters and I got a commitment that it would be referred to the electoral commission um, for them to research and, uh, and that will give the public an opportunity to have their say as well, which I think is really important. Okay. Because as we've seen, the public are often ahead of where politicians are. So, so let's see what comes back. Yeah, I'm not sure, though, uh, that is the case, that there would be support across the board, uh, certainly not for an outright ban on posters. Uh, there might be mixed feelings on it. Uh, it's the uh, free-for-all aspect of it, though, that they end up everywhere in appropriate places, falling down off poles onto people's cars uh, and obscuring vision uh, and staying up too long and the ties that are left afterwards I take it that are of concern to you Absolutely um, it isn't it, I, think it's, I think it's really important that we um, have a democratic process that means that everybody knows there's an election everybody knows who's running everybody knows what they stand for but what we've seen is a, a littering of posters that uh, you know, the public do get on to us and say, my God, the number of posters is outrageous um, and the ties being left up is another issue. Uh, but also they do, they fall down on people's cars um, 
and it's so it's so it's a safety aspect as well. But I mean, if you look at the 2014 local elections, you had 600,000 plastic posters, and that's enough to fill th- uh, 23 Croke Parks. Like mm. it's a huge number. I know, but now, they're very expensive the as well. Let's not forget because are. because of the expense, the monetary uh, cost of them. Um, people tend to use them again the following year. You see, you see, very old politicians <laughs> looking 20 years of age in some of the posters. Well, absolutely. And I think we all look for ways around around um, having more and more of them. Um, but what my proposal would be, and I think that, you know, this is something that the Electoral Commission is looking at, is not to ban them outright, but to limit them. So we've, se- we've seen in other countries or across Europe where there are designated zones where everybody would have equal space on that designated zone. And it wouldn't just have your picture, but would have what you stand for. Mm. So um, when I was speaking to councillors about this, and I was a councillor myself, what we found is that we couldn't ban them or limit them uh, through the council. It had to be done at a national level. But what we can do and what this legislation would do is to say the council would come back and say, here are the zones where we believe there will be um, you know, the best spread and best representation so that it would be several zones within a constituency would yeah. have these designated areas. And I, and I think that's that's a really good approach. But I mean, I'd love to hear what people have to think about it because I think, you know, we have to be really careful that we're not limiting democracy um, and particularly for new candidates or for smaller parties. Yeah. If, if we don't have any posters up and everybody else has them up, then uh, you you literally have no chance of getting elected. And it's really important to get elected and get your policies over the line. I mean, that's why, that's why politics is there. Um, but on the other hand, then, if you're a large party, and I, you know, we, did, we do have pushback from Sinn Féin, from Labour, and uh, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael are kind of mixed on this issue. If you're a large party and you have a lot of money behind you, you can throw loads and loads of posters at it. So it's actually, um, you know, it means that if you're a newcomer, if you um, are not already elected, you're having to compete then with the the cost that others can afford to put in and other parties that have a lot of money. Well, nobody's going to vote for you if they don't know anything about you. And sometimes leaflets and posters are the only means of uh, developing uh, 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 an identity, if you like. Um, But who is going to vote for you? That's the next question. Uh, Do you believe that people should be able to vote as young as 16? Well, it is Green Party policy that we um, introduce voting. And I think, you know, young people are more and more engaged in politics. And um, they, through SPHE in schools, they're learning about politics. And yet, really, it's quite late then when they can start to vote. And I mean, at any age should be allowed to or not allowed to vote. But when you think about it, it's the young people who... Um, are going to be impacted most by the policy decisions that people make when they're elected. Mm. And so there is a frustration, I think, amongst young people in particular. Like I've gone canvassing and um, I've met with people, apathetic older people who say, no, I'm not going to bother voting. And then I've met with people who are, you know, not yet 18, really frustrated that they can't vote. And I think, gosh, if only that person could have the vote. Um, They'd probably vote for the Green Party. Well, I don't know. Oh, yeah, come know. on, come I mean, on, call a spade a spade. This is what this is all no, about. I, 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 idealistic young people, and there's not many of them who'd want to vote, but if they are going to vote, they'd probably vote for the Green Party. And the reason they'd vote for the Green Party is because they don't have cars, they don't have cows, and they don't have houses. 
I think that young people really care about the future. But I, I, like that aside, you won't hear the Green Party um, mincing our words. I mean, we're honest, and I think that. Um, well, I'm the people who have the cars, honest. the cows, and the houses say they're going to vote you out of office in the next election, aren't they? <laughs> Well, I think that everybody is entitled to vote for who they want, and I never stop anybody from voting for another political party. Um, But I think it's really important to have honest politicians and people who will say, this isn't about um, banning anything. This is about giving people other options. And I think it's really easy for other political parties to use a party as a scapegoat. But what have they done over the last decades? Very, very little to bring a better future for all of us. But if we go back to the issue of people voting younger, I mean, this isn't about... Okay, but, but why should young people who don't have cars, cows, cows or houses be able to vote uh, for a party uh, whose policies worry a lot of people who have cars, cows and houses? I mean, if uh, you were to extend the right to vote to young people uh, when they're going to vote on issues that don't impact them, uh, would you not try to balance that by saying, OK, well, look, give me your phone or something uh, because that would make a, a big difference to how young people think and how they vote uh, the, the point is is that they'd be voting about issues that uh, to a large degree uh, don't actually impact on their day to day lives uh, on their survival uh, over the next few years I think I think really being unfair to young people if, if that's the explanation and I think withholding a vote from somebody because you don't like what they stand for um, should never be the first court call in democracy. People have a right to vote whether that's for the Green Party whether it's A 16 year old doesn't have a, a job either uh, and, and this probably is the best way of me making my point. I can imagine 16-year-olds voting to ban cars because they don't need a car to go to work. Is that the reason you don't want to give them a vote in case they vote in a way that you don't want them to vote? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. For instance, somebody who is in their 70s, 80s, 90s, they don't don't have a job either for the most part. It doesn't mean we say, no, you can't vote. Um, Like, honestly, everybody who is impacted should have a right to have a say. Now, I do think that... Um, that we need to look at it carefully. I think I think we do need to balance it. I think that what what we haven't had in this country is uh, an honest conversation about you know who are the people that are elected and do they really represent mm. the diverse society that we have. Um, we know that only twenty three percent of those elected are women, for instance. So there's a lot to consider in this as we move forward, and that's what the electoral Com- commission is doing. It's examining mm. all the options and saying. Is the politics that we have truly reflective of society and truly reflective of everyone? I mean, I am not going to vote for particular politicians, number one and number two, but I would never deny somebody else the opportunity to do that. But you would Um, deny them the opportunity of going to a pub or watching certain movies or sitting on a jury uh, because of their immaturity. I, well, I, I think that, you know, and I think that this is what, what the conversation has to be about. It's, it's about saying, um, and I, so this is why I think that it, it's good it's gone to the Electoral Commission rather than it's just gone into law. Um, and I do think that, uh, obviously, we know there are restrictions on what 16 and 17-year-olds can do already. Um, I don't have a fear that 
somebody voting in a particular way is going to um, negatively impact on their health or their well-being. And I think that's the difference. But we have all kinds of restrictions around how late people can be in pubs, around, you know, drink driving, all of those things that impact on every adult. It doesn't mean that uh, people um, shouldn't be able to vote. You know, I, I think that we've got to be honest and responsible and say, like, too, too often we've had people voted in who are only talking about what happens in the next year or two, who are only talking about um, sticking up for people who already they already have. And young people are going to be impacted. And I do obviously believe that young people are particularly impacted by climate, but they're also impacted by things like housing and the decisions that are made around funding for healthcare or the education system. And um, do do people who are older understand what it is to be a young person and, and do they vote in a way that's going to um, give the best opportunity for young people? Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But I think, unfortunately, all too often, um, politicians only think about a very limited number of people when they're making policies. Uh, and I think that if they knew that younger people could vote, they'd be more inclined to make policies mm. that would... Uh, would help young people. I, I think we do family, know that young yeah. people mm. are, are finding it difficult to get a foot on the ladder. Um, more are worried about their future in Ireland and more are worried about uh, what the job opportunities are. So, of course, they should have a say. Okay, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed. Uh, Thank it's, you. it's an old and ongoing conversation and one we could be returning to uh, indeed uh, by the sounds of things. Thanks as always for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, that is Green Party Senator Pauline O'Reilly. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, if you've been listening to us uh, this week, you'll know that next week uh, the Thomas Darcy McGee Summer School will be held in Carlingford. The opening session next Tuesday will feature an array of speakers. One of uh, the very interesting names on the panel of speakers is Tommy Sands, the folk musician, broadcaster, indeed political activist who joins us now. And a very good morning to you, Tommy. Thanks for taking time to be with us uh, ahead of uh, the summer school next week which will spend a a lot of time looking at life on this island 25 years after the Good Friday Agreement was signed. Uh, Maybe you talk to us uh, about that from your perspective in a moment Uh, but could you begin by taking us back to before the Good Friday Agreement uh, and life for you growing up in Mayo Bridge uh, and life on the family farm uh, where you say you lived in a, a mixed community and you had Protestant friends and you had Catholic friends and how you came to lose two of your friends uh, who would have been regular visitors uh, to your house, one Protestant and one Catholic for that matter. Yeah, uh, thanks Michael Uh, and good morning to you. Uh, Yeah, I grew up in a small farmhouse in in, uh, near Mayo Bridge in County Town and uh, we were... uh, all the neighbours, well, we were surrounded by religions of all sorts. Well, there's only two, actually, to be honest. Uh, but they would come to our house, uh, the people who come in, my father and mother both play music and uh, we grew up that way. And people who come in at night and sing songs and tell stories. And my earliest memory was uh, watching toes tapping to the same rhythm, regardless of the political or religious affiliation. And uh, indeed, the tunes being played had as much of a Scottish 
not as a marriage looked about them because uh, people came from both sides. And uh, so I, I think at that stage, it was important for me for the rest of my life, in a sense, Michael, because I realized that music was something that could somehow connect up all the secret and sacred things inside us, sometimes without our knowing. And uh, I, I found that later on, you know, when the trouble started and uh, people didn't know what to say. Uh, for example, you mentioned that the two people that came to our house, uh, one was Catholic, one was a Protestant, and uh, one was actually shot in retaliation for the other being shot, even though they were friends in, the, in our own little community. And uh, I thought that that summed up war anywhere, where ordinary people can uh, be the different religions, colors, nations, can be totally different human beings and somehow find reason to to, to kill. So when the Good Friday Agreement happened, or, well, we didn't know it was going to be called the Good Friday Agreement because it was, uh, uh, we didn't know if it's going to be an agreement by Easter or, or not. But the, the TV news is saying that the talks were faltering. So uh, I suppose everybody does what they can do with whatever they have. And I decided to go up and bring some friends, musicians from both sides of the divide, and uh, children from both sides, and uh, sing a song. And I felt that if I wrote a song with a chorus, simple chorus, it probably would get on the six o'clock news uh, and possibly the politicians might join in. And so uh, it's a very simple chorus because the chorus is a little bit like a newspaper headline in a way. You can refer back to it or or refer forward to it, but politicians seldom, rival politicians seldom get a chance to publicly agree on anything because TV needs storms, moving pictures. It needs that. So it's difficult to get uh, an opportunity for politicians to agree without losing face, except in the chorus of a song, if the narrative is acceptable. And all I was thinking in the song was, carry on, carry on, the peace will come again. And they all came out and they sang it. And, uh, so it was very moving. And uh, it, it, I suppose it gave me a certain belief in the, the power of music in everyday life. Mm. What was it David Irvine said about you? <laughs> yeah, he said, I was the only one without a private army who could intimidate him. But uh, David had a good sense of humour, you know, and mm. uh, he was a good singer too. And uh, he joined me on the stage several times mm. to uh, sing a song. Yeah. I, I was speaking to his sister-in-law, uh, Linda, who will be on the panel with you next Tuesday as well, the other day in the programme. She said she considers herself to be British and to be Irish. Uh, h- how would uh, you consider yourself? Well, I, I never would consider myself anything other than Irish, to be honest. But my neighbours, if they feel they're British, I would respect that. And... Uh, uh, and make sure that they feel at home in the place where I live and uh, they make me feel at home in the place where I live. Because regardless of whether we call it Northern Ireland or the North of Ireland, it's, it's our home. Mm. And uh, 
So that's how I would see it. And uh, I think Lynn's a wonderful person. And uh, Brian, I think very often we address unionists as if they're uh, unconformed or unconverted nationalists instead of addressing them and respecting them for what they are and what they believe in. Okay, well, politics uh, in Northern Ireland doesn't exist at the moment. Uh, It's a a nonsense once again, uh, as dreadful as that is uh, to say. And uh, we have a a relatively young peace process since uh, 1980, uh, 1998, and uh, it is fragile, as we've seen on occasion. And the political vacuum uh, has... Uh, led to many problems and indeed uh, possible solutions. One of them is the Sinn Féin idea of a border poll. Is that something you'd be in favour of? Well, I, I think that, that is part of the Good Friday Agreement and that's something that's inevitable. Uh, I think uh, I think sometimes referendums uh, can be more of a source of conflict than peace if it's just yes, no, or us, them. For years, we have been asked in the North here, are you British or Irish in referendums? So Catholics didn't vote because uh, they were in the minority and they couldn't win. Uh, And I think very often the problem we make in politics generally is looking for Binary questions. Uh, I remember speaking to, to uh, uh, John Hewitt, he's a poet here, uh, an old man, when he was old and wise and I was young, just. I remember asking him, are you British or Irish, John? He said, I'm a Belfast man. Mm. I was born in Belfast. Belfast is an Antrim man. I'm, I'm an Antrim man. Antrim is an Ulster. I'm an Ulster man. Ulster's in Ireland, I'm an Irish man. Ireland's in Europe, I'm a European. He says, do you want me to go on? Mm. And he says, no. Because there are many other things besides this or that. And in fact, it's, it's uh, maybe very uh, apt that in the Irish language, there's no word for yes or no. You repeat the verb in its positive or negative form. Because there's lots of truth colours and truth between the black and white Mm. of yes and no and very often that's where the truth lies and I think that's where uh, if politics is the art of the possible we must look at many different ways of finding solutions. Uh, just want to mention two television programmes, if I can, Tommy, uh, odd as that might sound, uh, but of a, a 23-year-old son, and I asked him to watch Once Upon a Time in Northern Ireland, an absolutely brilliant uh, series from uh, the BBC, which has been run on RTA uh, at the moment. And I, I did that because I think any young person who doesn't remember the Troubles should watch it because it, it depicts what happened on this island uh, very well uh, with some excellent footage and storytelling on behalf of uh, the programme makers. Uh, and uh, Another programme, uh, though, uh, Blue Lights, I don't know if you watched that, I think it's probably been one of the best cop shows uh, on television from the BBC again in recent times, uh, but it, it follows members of the PSNI. And I remember watching the programme thinking, God, um, that uh, Catholic uh, member of the PSNI uh, was 
uh, afraid that people in her community would know uh, and that she was a member of a GAA team and then when um, she realised that they would become aware that she was a police officer that she needed to leave the GAA team and they obviously then people watching the show will know uh, told her we do all along and don't worry about it and so on and I mentioned that in the context of the current data breach and how a lot of us are surprised to hear that today PSNI officers have been working as police officers without their family, friends or whoever uh, may uh, uh, th- 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 may be associated with them without them knowing that they were police officers. And now that they're uh, at risk uh, because dissidents uh, have this information uh, and there's a lot of concern, obviously, uh, about that fact. Uh, I think in some ways that highlights just how young and fragile the peace process is, or does it, do you think? Yeah, well, you know, Michael, I suppose most peace processes in the world break down after 15 years. Uh, This has been going 25 years, uh, and I think it will continue uh, because I don't think anyone wants to go back to to violence. Uh, I think the the problem of Catholics in, in the police force and so on is just indicative of a very difficult situation uh, of that we are trying to solve. And I suppose if it is easy, it would have been solved a long time ago. Uh, I, I, I think the, the, the ultimate answer is in speaking to each other, talking to each other, getting to know each other, because uh, whenever that stops, we create, we get wise ourselves. And, uh, for example, I, I get an, an invite to, to play down in the, the Orange Hall uh, near my own home. And uh, I was a little bit reluctant to do that. Uh, I, uh, uh, for all sorts of reasons. But I knew that I would know most of those people. Maybe not them personally, but their fathers and mothers. Uh, that I would have worked with on the farm or gathering spuds or treasure. And uh, I decided to go. And it was a very, very moving night. Uh, I think people badly need to be reached out to. And I think music is something that can do that. Uh, without, you know, letting, giving people space and plenty of space. And I think at the moment, uh, the UP have been given a lot of space. Uh, I think they will come in uh, to, to the... Uh, they, 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 We'll come into the assembly and make things happen there. But they all have their difficulties. And uh, obviously, Jeffrey Donaldson, he has his difficulties. His brother will be coming actually on Tuesday to play a Lambeck drum, uh, and mm-hmm. his wife will play for five. And uh, I think that's it's very difficult for some people to appear to be going outside their own tribe. And it takes a lot of courage. And sometimes it's very, very difficult. It will be unusual for James Donaldson to be playing the Lambeg drum in uh, Carlingford on Tuesday of next week. I, I wish we had more time, Tommy, uh, but we, we've run out of time, uh, unfortunately. People can hear more from you on Tuesday uh, in Carlingford uh, as you'll be on that panel. As I say, you talk about music and what it can do. 
uh, and uh, maybe we'll break a, a golden rule on this programme of not playing music by playing a, a little bit of uh, a song that you wrote about uh, your two very close friends that you spoke about at the beginning of our, our conversation, one Protestant, one Catholic, uh, one killed in real- retaliation uh, for the killing of uh, the other. Uh, this is a, a song that uh, many have uh, described as one of uh, the most important uh, songs uh, in terms of summing up the troubles on this island. Tommy Sands, thanks for joining us. There were roses. So my song for you this evening It's not to make you sad Not for adding to the sorrows Of this troubled northern land But lately I've been thinking And it just won't leave my mind To tell you of two friends one time Who were both good friends of mine I don't know where the moral is Or where the song should end but I wonder just how many wars are fought between good friends And those that give the orders are not the ones to die It's Bell and O'Malley and the likes of you and I There were roses, roses, there were roses And the tears of the people Run together. There were roses. More conversation on uh, the Good Friday Agreement uh, next week in Carlingford at uh, the Thomas Darcy McGee Summer School. With thanks today to Tommy Sands, folk musician, broadcaster, and political activist. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as you know about, well, maybe you know, uh, about 2,000 retained firefighters are striking. Let's speak once again to Fionan Blake, station officer in Dunshockland. Good morning, uh, Fionan. As I say, people might know, uh, because as I said to you the last time, has anybody noticed uh, you're on strike? Uh, You're to go dark from 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. Uh, Are people going to notice? What does that mean? And will uh, there be an impact, in other words? Hi, Michael. Thanks for having us on again. Yeah, look, at um, going dark really won't affect the public. It's more of a thing on our side. What happens is uh, we have a keypad on the radio and when we get a call, we answer the call in the station and we use the keypad to go mobile to the call, so we're booking mobile. And when we get to the call, we go in attendance so, and we deal with the call and then we go with a thing called MAV, which is mobile and available. So... Uh, Management know where we are at all times, and just communications with the with our with our uh, call centre. Mm. So basically, now going dark, what that means is we're cutting out all communication with management, and we're not going to be using that. Okay, uh, it's part of uh, further escalation, anyway, isn't it? It is. It is. The escalation yeah. then is going mm. to go on. It's kind of hard to explain that to someone that's not really in the brigade, but the escalation is going to increase over the next over the coming weeks. And uh, I tomorrow, take it. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Tomorrow at eight a.m. we start. We go dark, and that's for the full week. And we're still on the fifty-fifty as we were talking about last week. So uh, we're on the picket today. So Ashburn are covering us today. So that's that's continuing on next week. Then, as and from Saturday the nineteenth, which is next Saturday, we're going to have an extra station closed. 
So, which means in Mead with seven stations, there's going to be four closed and just three open. And then on, if it continues on the following week, there's going to be an, an extra station closed again, which means there's only going to be two stations open out of the seven. So then you're looking at two stations, you know, looking after a population of 140,000, whatever it is. Yeah, but, um, I, don't, I don't think anybody likes the sound of that, probably you less than anyone. No. Uh, but at that stage, we start to notice, and I take it that's the objective yeah. to force the government okay. to talks. Look, to be honest with you, we're already operating at dangerous levels even before this strike, but we've exhausted every roof with this and the escalation is now getting to a very serious situation and um, we just feel like we've been let down by the by the management, politicians and the government and we feel like we've been disrespected and really they're putting the public lives at risk here. There's, there's no way, you know, it, it can go on for much longer. Um, I seen Mr. Varadkar was coming out of a place in Mayo yesterday and he was talking to one of our colleagues from Westport there, Tom Catterick, and Tom went through this with him, the escalation and how it's going to affect the public and the risk and the danger in the next couple of weeks. And really all he said was that he wanted to commend the work that we were doing and that they'd look into it. And that seems to be their line all the time. Like, we're not looking for a pat on the back or for mm-hmm. a praise for what we're doing. You know, and, and they stopped paying you? They haven't stopped paying us, no. Uh, obviously, we're, we're on strike 50-50, so we're, we're only at half our calls. You yeah. know, but they haven't stopped paying us, but, uh, you know... We, we just, Have they stopped paying social protection, top-up payments uh, from welfare to members? Uh, they did. The, the, the 40% or 33% of the members are on welfare, and they've, they've tried to cut that now, and they're, they're sending out letters and cutting lads off that, and SIP2 have acted on that now, so hopefully... Uh, that won't happen but they're really just trying to put the squeeze on us trying to I think they're nearly trying to starve lads off the picket line but anyway they, all they need to do is just to go back into meaningful we're looking to go back into meaningful talks it'll take one phone call to stop this mm. and that's all, that's all it'll take we're looking for someone just to get hold of it like they're coming out saying all the right things and hopefully we oh, should we look after you and that but nobody's actually doing anything about it Is it possible and to starve members off the picket line or how, determ- well, how determined are, are, are your colleagues? I just I know for a fact that we're not going to back down on this and it's, we're used to fighting against the odds and we're going to stand on the picket line and if, if we have to stand there through the through the winter, hail, rain or snow. We're going to stand there and we're fighting for this, and we're not going to back down. So they're just going to have to come across. We're not going away, mm. and just the the biggest thing that's keeping us going really is the community, and the communities have been brilliant. I know here in Dunchalk, and we're here this morning, and the lads are out in the picket line. There, two or three people have stopped already. The beeping horns going by. They're stopping with with food and dropping it in, and the, the, you know the public are really supporting us. 100% and that, that's what's keeping us going because we're doing this for the, for the public as well you know so that's all we can do is keep going and hopefully we're just hoping now before this gets too bad that they're going to come across and just make a phone call and go back into meaningful talks and we'll come off the picket while the talks are going on you know Okay. and uh, that's, that's, the, that's the way it is now anyway Well you know? it's not going to be resolved any time soon uh, not in the coming days uh, it would seem uh, with the weekend ahead of us uh, Fiona and I'm sure yeah. we'll be speaking to you again we have to leave it there for the moment thanks though for no speaking problem. to us today Fiona Blake, Blake is the station officer in Dunshockland Fire Station that's our programme for today and this week thanks to Maggie McGuire for researching Chris Murray was at the control tower I'm Michael Godwin we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM good morning bye bye 
The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie.